following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. Fantastic. All right, I'm recording. Awesome. Well, welcome to church, everyone. And by the way, today's a special day. Today is Hug and England Fan Day. So if you know anyone who's an England supporter, give them a cuddle. It's not coming home. That's a World Cup joke. All right, let's get into it. So we are in the second week of a series called Unboxing Jesus. We're taking the time over Advent to really look through who Jesus is, what was so special about the gift of his coming, etc. So last week we looked at prophecy and the, you know, the foretelling. This week we're looking at the purchasing. We're looking at the cost, the expense, what it cost God to bring Jesus into our world. Just as you think about it, and by the way, if you have your Bibles or your device, if you want to turn to Philippians 2, it will not be on the screen, unfortunately. But um, if you have it, uh, please head over there. I was thinking about it this week. Many years ago, when I was a little boy, I remember one Christmas, um, just a normal Christmas like any other, gathered around the tree, of course, and we've done the family thing. We've had presents and things like that. I remember Christmas night, sort of feeling a bit down and maybe I was even a bit emotional. My memory's a bit sketchy. I remember mum coming to me and saying, what's wrong, son? What's wrong? And I just remember having this conversation like, I I feel like unworthy. I feel a bit guilty. I feel like, you know, there's gifts that are given each and every year and a month or two's time, they're going to be on a shelf somewhere. (laughs) I know, strange for a kid to be thinking that way. But I remember this very clearly and mum's like, no, no, it's okay. It's kind of what kids do. You know, I expect that. That's kind of the norm. And I know for me now as a parent, for Cheryl and I, we want our kids to expect, you know, that we will also give them gifts, that we will do our best for them, just like my folks did, just like Cheryl's folks did. But, but we're hoping there will come a point where they realise that money doesn't necessarily grow on trees, at least not in our household. Um, You know, many of you can probably relate to this, going to the shops and one member in the house who I will not name, will say, oh, I want to go shopping, I want to go shopping. And we're like, all right, but you know, no, no getting anything this week. All right, mom, all right, dad, no problem. Five minutes later, can I get that? Can I get that? Give me, give me, give me. We've had this conversation so many times. Now, why do I raise that? Well, see, we need to have this kind of tension, I think, as well. Because part of maturity is we realize that we can't just have everything we want, Right? <clears throat> And it's the same in faith to some extent. Now, some of you are like, Andrew, come on. Didn't Jesus say childlike faith? Come to me as a child. Yes, he did say that. He said we need to have trust and dependence and the wonder that a child has. However, however, we also read in the Bible things like this. When we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give us the desires of our heart. Now, that's not necessarily for a Porsche in your driveway. That's not necessarily for the big house. You may need those things. But what he's really saying is, when you delight in God, your heart becomes more like God's heart. Your will becomes more like God's will. And you say, that's Old Testament. All right, let's go to John. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you will and it will be given to you. It's the same thought. He's saying, as we spend time with Jesus, we will appreciate that it's not just about what I want. It's not just about what I can be given because I realize there's a cost. There's a value. And moreover, it's what God wants. It's God's heart and God's will. It's what it cost God to be in my life in the first place. That starts to become what I want. 
There is a tension. Christian maturity, I think as we get older, we realize that as we ask God for things, it's less about me and more about his will, more about his mission, and more about the fact that it costs him so much to be in our lives in the first place. And so my prayer, and I think our prayer for this series, is that we will, we will pray and we will spend time this series meditating on God and his goodness and just living our lives in line with knowing that this gift is unlike any other. This gift at Christmas is unlike any other and we can live in honour of him. So with those thoughts, just by way of introduction, let's read Philippians chapter 2. This is a very, very familiar passage. We're going to look from verse 1 through to 11. Therefore, if any of you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This is where we're going. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, let's pray. Father, this morning as we come around your word, I ask, Lord, that you would continue to just minister to us. Lord, we've had technical difficulties. I pray they don't get in our way this morning because we want to behold you. We want to see you afresh, Jesus, our precious gift from heaven. Lord, help me as we unbox this gift together, Lord, as we look at what it costs you to bring Jesus into our world and give us a way home. Lord, help us to understand today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've got 14 points this morning, so I hope you've got your <laughs> pens out. 14? No, two, just two, just two. I will, I will say this. I'll probably spend more time on the first and the second, but they're both, both really important. So first is this. Number one, we're going to talk about the humility of Jesus which might sound obvious after what we've just read. We're going to talk about the humility of Jesus in honouring his father. Let's talk about the cost. Let's jump right in. What did it cost Jesus to be here in this world? Well, when we look at this passage, particularly from verse 6, there's four observations I see here. Firstly, we see a humble obedience. We see a Jesus that is obedient to the father. We read there in verse 6 that he was in very nature God. But yet, despite that, 
He didn't consider equality something to be used for his own advantage. Other versions say something to be like grasped for, reached for. I mean, how many of us know about people abusing power and grasping for it, reaching for it, hanging on to it desperately? If you cast your mind back to 2021, there was a certain president in a certain country that uh, didn't want to leave the White House. Uh, a beautiful slide up there. He was getting dragged out by his feet. Uh, it was a skit. It, it didn't really happen like that. But you see, power corrupts. We know that. But we don't see that with Jesus. I don't know what the conversation in heaven was like, but at some point, the Godhead talking amongst themselves is like, we need to redeem this human race. And we don't see Jesus being dragged out of there. We don't see Jesus saying, do you know who I am? We see Jesus saying, I'll go. He might be equal with the Father and equal with the Spirit, but he says, I will go. I will be the offering that is required. I will go, even what it's going to cost me. I mean, you think about that. The God of the universe stepping down from heaven. All the majesty. You know, the guy that spoke stars and planets into being. Suddenly, he decides, I'm going to leave that glory behind because I've got a purpose to fulfill on the earth. Humble. So humble. In fact, when we read uh, in Psalm 40, and this is picked up by the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews says this amazing thing. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. Hebrews is talking about how the blood of bulls and beasts is not going to save us. You know, we heard about that beautifully in communion, about the scapegoat. But that's no longer needed. And the plan of God was this. When Christ came into the world, he said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll, in the book, in the Bible. It has been foretold about me. I have come to do your will, God. And just to back that up, Jesus said in John chapter 5, he says that my plans are what the Father plans for me. My judgment is just because I do what my Father says. See, all the while, he's in obedience to God, not doing his own thing. His humility from the beginning in laying glory aside, church. I don't know, it's a big concept. I know it's a hot day, but I need you to think. I need you to hear me. This is huge. God's stepping down from glory. What humility. But it goes further than that. Not only that he's humble in the heavens, but when he comes to earth, his birth is as humble as you could get. Which is what we talk about every Christmas. You see... Not only did he not consider equality something to be reached for, he made nothing of himself. Being made in human likeness, verse 7 tells us in that reading. And cast your mind back. I mean, this is what we're celebrating in Advent season. Mary and Joseph have to make their way over to Bethlehem. It's a little backwater. There was nothing about Bethlehem that was particularly uh, significant. Even all the way back in Micah, the prophet says that Bethlehem, you are little. You were the smallest town in Judah. But they make their way back there and the prophecy says that out of you will rise a ruler from Israel, one who will rule over the nations. And his origins are from everlasting. Talking about a saviour coming. And you know the circumstances of the birth. Every hotel was booked. There was no room anywhere. 
And in Luke chapter 2, we're told that the innkeeper says, well, I've got a stable. The house is full. I've got nowhere else to go, but you can have the stable. Mary Joseph, I know she's about to have the baby any second. I've got a manger. That that can be your cradle. I mean, do, 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 do we think about this? The God of the universe lay where animals eat? The goats and the sheep are essentially the midwives that night? I mean, wow. A humble, humble birth. You, you think about birth today. Who of us has been born in a stable? Who of us has laid our baby in a manger? You know, we've, we've seen many royal births recently. William and Kate have had kids. Harry and Meghan, some of the other lesser royals as well. They're all pretty significant events. The press is all over them. I don't remember any of them being in a manger. You know, or some of these uh, rich billionaires or wannabes like the Kardashians or something. Can you imagine? I'll repent of that one later. Can Can you imagine any of them in a stable, in a manger? You know, and all that goes with it. I don't need to spell it out. I mean, what a lowly beginning. And yet this is the world that our Messiah comes to. He's humble in hearing God. He's humble in his birth. But then, to continue, he's humble all his life. He's humble in his service to humanity. That verse continues. He made nothing of himself by taking the very nature of a servant. Jesus never, again, he never stands on his status. He didn't rock up in some place and say, I've got a reservation here. Don't you know who I am, right? I'm the king of the universe. I spoke you into being. Are you going to give me a room? There's nothing like that. It's the complete opposite from Jesus. Jesus is continually serving. We, we see that, you know, in, in Matthew, that he, is, um, he, he runs into the Samaritan woman. He's thirsty. But instead of, you know, demanding a drink, he does ask, but then they converse. And he explains his heart to them. He explains his heart to her and he explains her heart to herself as well. Jesus is tied in the bottom of the boat sometime later. And what happens? The disciples are like, Jesus, get up. We're going to die on the lake here. And he calms the storm. Jesus, having seen his cousin die, John the Baptist, and at that moment wanting some solace, some solitude. But what happens? The crowds follow. He doesn't send them away. Instead, he heals them and then he feeds them with live loaves and two fish. And then Jesus has sorrow when his friend Lazarus passes away. But instead of sort of wallowing in that and showing his power, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus is constantly serving humanity. And you might say he's the God of the universe. Why would he serve us? We should be serving him. I'll get to that. I'll get to that. But see, Jesus also said, didn't he? The sick, it's, it, the, the well don't need a physician. The sick need the doctor. Church, whether we like it or not, we were the weak ones. We were the needy ones. We still, today, even in our Christianity, need Jesus every day. I don't know if you believe it. Is anyone awake out there? I'm not really sure. Yeah. Hear me. Hear my heart. Jesus is no less needed by us now. Why should, we, why should he serve us? Because we need him. We desperately need him. You know, in Mark chapter 10, James and John do something that's uh, kind of subversive. 
They come up to Jesus and their mother says, can you put one at the right and one at the left? Now this isn't, you know, sit with me at lunchtime. This isn't best buddies and we'll sit with each other for the school term. This is for eternity. She's asking a big thing. And what does Jesus say? He says, I can give you my cup, but this is not something I can decide. And the other disciples aggro with what they're trying to do. He sits them down and he says this, if you want to be great, first be a servant. Because even the son of man did not come to serve, but to, to not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Church, our savior, this gift, he served us. He serves, humble in service. And then, not only that, but humble in his death. Humble, humiliation really. Verse 8 in Philippians 2 says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, that's said quite boringly really in Philippians. That doesn't cover half of it. See, church, if Jesus was humble through his birth, through his life, the ultimate humility, the ultimate humiliation at Calvary, the cost suddenly becomes real. This is what he came for. This is what he was born for, to take your sin and my sin. You see, and just in the physical for a moment, crucifixion was made for the worst of the worst. The Romans didn't crucify just anybody. They were the criminals. They were the treasonous. They were the traitors. And they've lumped Jesus in with this mob. This is who we see you as, Jesus. Because remember, someone else was let go that day. Barabbas, who was the real stirrer. He was the real troublemaker. And he deserved to die. But he was let go. And Jesus took it from him instead. But see, we're just talking about the physical. You know, the beatings, the floggings. Imagine spiritually what Jesus is going through. 1 Peter 2, Peter writes to us that he himself bore our sin in his body. And see, I don't even know what that looks like, but hour by hour, the sin of the world, past, present, future, every sin we've ever committed, every sin we've had in thought, the best, the worst, whatever it might be, they're all laid upon him on that cross as the darkness enclosed closed in around him so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's the reason he came. That's the reason we have the gift. And for whatever reason, Jesus feeling alone on the cross, the father, I don't, I don't even know what that means, turning away or whatever. I don't understand that. But Jesus felt alone. And you know the story. At about three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took the loneliness so we might never be alone again. He took the punishment so we could go free. Is anyone excited about that this morning? Is anyone excited about that news this morning? Because I am. I hope you are. Jesus did this for you and for me. I know it's the silly season. I know it's Christmas. But honestly, you can't separate the two. We can't take the manger from the cross. They go together. Church, please hear my heart. God wants you to hear this this morning. Don't doze off on me. My favorite carol this Christmas time, Hark the Herald, and 
I can't understand how we can sing these songs and it does nothing to us. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. No wonder we say glory to the newborn king. No wonder we get excited. Why? It's this purpose. He did this to win our freedom. The purchase of this gift that is so costly bought your freedom and my freedom. Bought your seat here in this church. Bought your seat in heaven. He paid a debt we could never pay, church. Can you say amen to that? You see, leaving glory, born humbly, living as a servant, dying as a criminal. Church, there's no greater cost than that. There really is nothing greater. This is why John says there's no greater love than this. There is no greater love than one who lays down his life, especially the glorious one, when he does it for unworthy people like you and me. How great the cost. And so you might sit there and say, well, that's good. How do we, how do we respond to that? How do we react to this? Jesus being humble, great. So what, what do we do? What do we do? Well, Paul did say to be like Christ, as he's just explained. So if Jesus was humble, I'm going to suggest we need to come humbly as well. Not just, we've seen the humility of Christ. And I want to talk a little bit more just now about the humility that he expects of the Christian, of the Christ follower. You see, Jesus did everything to honor the Father. And so our response would be to honor Christ and honor the Father in the process. In the reading verse, uh, verse 9, after going through all of what Jesus has gone through, Paul then continues. He says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Nothing higher than him. No one higher than him. And gave him the name that is above every name. No celebrity, no president, no billionaire gets near Jesus. No one gets near that. And so we see a God who has exalted his son in resurrection. A God who has exalted Jesus. And when we see a Jesus like this, our response should be worship. Our response should be laying our lives down at his feet once again. And then it goes on to say that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. At some point, you bowed the knee and you confessed that Jesus was Lord, didn't you? I'm sure, I think some of you did. And you see, when I read that, my heart is like, I did that and now I want others to know this as well. I want to share this gift. I want to help unbox this gift for my friends, for my family. Because I skipped over a bit, if you know that verse. It says, every knee shall bow, every tongue in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Thank you, Rohan. I heard that. He memorized this passage, seriously. Um, We were talking before the service. Whenever you see those terms, heaven, earth, under the earth, that's an eschatological term. That's an end time term. So what Paul is saying is, that at some point in time, God's going to wrap up the affairs of this earth. God's going to say, I'm done. Mercy is finished. Grace is finished. I've given so much time. And now it's over. And judgment is going to happen. And the sad reality is that those of us who haven't chosen Jesus will still bow the knee. They will still confess Jesus is Lord before being cast into hell for eternity. 
Now, that, that gets at my heart. There are people I know, there are people you know, that may just be in that group who have not lived the life, maybe not living the life now, and one day may pay for it. Which is so sad because Jesus has already paid the debt. The gift is here. The gift is here for us. We've just got to unbox it. And so for me, this talks about, yes, worship, but also mission. We have a responsibility to those around us so they might know the gift of God as well. So it's humility to honour him and to live for him. Now, you might say, time out, Andrew. Hold on a second. I have lived my life and the culture screams at me every day. It's all about me. And, you know, my rights and my career and my privileges. And, you know, even a pastor many years ago said to me, I'm the head and I'm not the tail. You know, and this, isn't, this, isn't this the way we're supposed to live our lives? Well, before I really tackle that, let me just say, worship without humility is not worship. If we think we can worship God, because worship is not an action. Worship starts in here. Worship starts with us laying our lives before Him. If we don't do that, there's no point us doing any of the outward signs of worship, whatever they may look like. And this is why a scapegoat wasn't enough. This is why bulls and beasts on the Day of Atonement were not enough. And this is why even coming to church isn't enough. Reading your Bible isn't enough, as good as those things are. If our heart is in the wrong place before God, it really isn't going to matter. It's not going to make an ounce of difference. But we talk about the self, you know, self-rights and my rights and my privileges, etc. Well, it's worth remembering where this passage is written. This is in Philippians. And if you know your Bible, Philippians is all about suffering and joy through suffering and enduring suffering, walking hand in hand with God. And by the way, the author was suffering too. He was writing from jail. Paul was in chains for the gospel, he writes in the first chapter. But instead of moping around, he's rejoicing because the believers are like, hey, we're going to share the word. And they're emboldened because of his his, uh, being in prison. And then in chapter 2, further down from this reading, he says, I know you're working hard. Don't give up. Your labor is not in vain. So don't grumble. Don't grumble. Be encouraged. God will use what you're you're doing. And then in chapter 3, another very well-known part of this book where Paul says that I was a, you know, Hebrew of the Hebrews, Pharisee of the Pharisees. You know, you couldn't have got a better Jew than me. But then he says, all of that is garbage. I think he uses more colourful language in the Greek, but we'll we'll stick with garbage. All of that is nothing compared to knowing Jesus. He is first. And then later on in that chapter, he talks about there are enemies of the cross. They're going to be all around you. Sounds like the day we live in, doesn't it? Enemies of the cross. But don't worry because your citizenship isn't here on the earth. Your citizenship's in heaven. So have your eyes on heaven. Endure your trial. And then finally, in Acts four, uh, Philippians 4, Paul writes that I know how to have much. I know how to have little. I know how to feast. I know how to fast. And so therefore I can do all things. That's not a proof text for jumping off a building, by the way. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's all about enduring the trial. 
And we do a disservice when we tell people that coming to Jesus will make your life good. It might. But it probably won't. Not in this life. I've said this before. That coming to Jesus, we think it's a monopoly. Get out of jail card. No, no, no. It's usually go to jail card. That's usually what it is. The trials often come when people know you're a Christian. Even in the West. You see, church, people love the Christmas Jesus. People love gentle Jesus, meek and mild. They don't so much love Jesus on the cross. And they certainly don't love the idea of a judgment Jesus. A Jesus who will come one day. And a Jesus that asks his people to live humbly before God. But as I said before, you can't take the manger and separate it from the cross. They go together. It's one gift. It's one gift that's been wrapped up in layers and that's why we unbox it. That's why we're talking about unboxing Jesus this Christmas season. Church, he's the gift that keeps on giving. He is the gift that keeps on giving. And so church, as we draw this to an end, when we consider the cost, the length, the expense, the purchase of this gift of life that Jesus has given us, I don't know about you, but my heart cannot help but reply, I know it's going to be hard, God, but I want to give everything for you. Because somehow you thought I was worth saving. Because of the worth of your father, because the obedience you have, you came down for me. And I want to give my life for you. Church, is that your heart this morning? Are you burning for him this morning? Or do you see it as another gift under the tree? What is Jesus to you this morning? Or is he gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but we, we're not going to worry about the rest of it. We're going to leave the rest of it out of the message. Which Jesus are we talking about? Yeah. I'm just going to get the, uh, the band up for a second. I think it might be a fitting way just to close with a, with a quick song. A well-known song, so you won't need the words, thankfully. And I think it sums it up. Really beautiful. Because the honest truth is that as we consider the greatness of God coming to earth, living in your heart and mind, have you, I mean, that's a sermon of itself. Don't worry, I'm not going to go there. We're nearly done. But as we think about that, what else can we do but live our lives for Him? What else can we do but look at this amazing love of His? And offer everything we have, our soul, our life, our all to Him. So church, if you want to sit, you want to stand, you want to kneel, I don't mind what posture you take this morning. But we're going to sing this. And I just pray that as we think about the purchase of this gift of Jesus, that these words would resonate. These words would resonate with you and that we will, we'll, you know, find if there are areas in our lives we're still living for ourselves, areas of our lives that we are still haven't yielded to our Saviour, that this Christmas might be a season where we can give that up to Him again. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.